Welcome. Thank you for being with us here today. Nice to see you all. I know we have many others who are going to trickle in with us and um, excited to have this hour and a half with you. Normally, our programs these days are an hour, but we'll be together for an hour and a half tonight because we have a, our normal tribute in the beginning as well and want to have some extended time at the end for questions and comments and thoughts. I want to thank um, our friends and partners at Ortzion for being a co-sponsor of today's event. And, um, and also invite folks who want to see us continue the, the Dr. Sherman Minkoff Memorial Lecture Series to consider contributing to that so we can uh, keep, this, keep this going, our annual lecture series. I also want to let you know that we have a packed week of VBM learning. Tomorrow we have Rabbi Or Rose from Hebrew College, who's going to be teaching about the legacy of Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi. That's tomorrow at 1. Wednesday, we have a class with Rabbi Arya Bernstein on racism. Um, at 11 o'clock, and then Thursday at 1 o'clock, a professor from Yeshiva University uh, offering transgender interpretations of Torah reading, Dr. Uh, professor Joy Lady. So lots more going on, but that's the highlight of this week. We are thrilled to learn with Rabbi Dr. Sid Schwartz, uh, a, a teacher and mentor of mine, and to do that in honor of Dr. Sherman Minkoff. And to start us off, I'm going to pass it over to our dear friend, Andy Minkoff, to uh, share a few words. Thank you, Rabbi Yanklowitz. Um, before uh, I begin, I want to tell you the scene behind me is a picture that I took from an airplane as we were flying by Mount Everest. Uh, Mount Everest is obviously the greatest height in the world. And I think it fits very, very well with Valley Beit Midrash because May the learning that we experience with Valley Beit Midrash programs take us as high as we can possibly go. So Mount Everest, Valley Beit Midrash, it's a perfect match. Um, my husband Sherman decided to retire at the age of 62 and it was one of the best decisions that he ever made. We had time to travel, we had time to enjoy our young grandchildren and Sherman finally had the time to pursue his lifelong passion for learning. He read, he surfed the web, he regularly took courses at Arizona State University, go Sun Devils. And as time went on, he focused more and more on courses in the Judaic Studies Department. He learned conversational Hebrew, and he even studied biblical Hebrew so that he could read uh, the original versions of uh, historic texts. He studied Jewish history, especially the Holocaust, and he devoured whatever he could find on modern Jewish thought. In pursuit of learning all he could about today's Jewish world, he came across a book by a man named Rabbi Sid Schwartz. It was called Jewish Megatrends. Rabbi Schwartz assembled a number of contemporary Jewish thinkers to write about what they perceived about the changing modern Jewish community. It definitely wasn't our grandparents' Jewish community. It wasn't even our parents' Jewish community. And since I'm a parent and a grandparent, it wasn't and isn't the Jewish community that I grew up in. Sherman was so taken by the thoughts expressed in the book that he contacted Rabbi Schwartz and they had many conversations via email. He decided and I agreed that bringing Rabbi Schwartz here so that we could learn from him would truly enrich our Jewish community. We proposed that on several occasions, 
but we were never able to make it happen. When Rabbi Shmuley suggested him as a possible speaker for the lecture that honors my husband's memory, I jumped at the chance. It's a perfect tribute to Sherman to bring Rabbi Schwartz to a Valley Beit Midrash program so that we can fulfill his wish that we learn from this incredible scholar. Rabbi Schwartz, it took a while, but I'm thrilled you're finally with us. Baruch haba. Thank you, Andy. We're now gonna watch a, a short two to three minute tribute video to Dr. Sherman Dekal. Sherman was the son of Orthodox Jewish immigrants from Poland. As a boy, he learned the what and the how, but not the why of Jewish observance. As an adult, he began to study the why and it transformed him. As a younger man, he viewed Judaism only as a religion and believed that religious observance was what bound the Jewish people together. However, as he learned the whys, he decided that Klai Yisrael, the Jewish people, was what bound us together and that religious observance was one expression of our Jewish peoplehood, but there were many others. Tikkun Olam, Israel, sharing community and family celebrations, Jewish study, etc. It was a commitment to pluralism that made him conclude we must honor and respect many different forms of Jewish expression. Sherman knew there is not just one way to be a good Jew. The way we dance till three. The way you've changed my life. No, no, they can't take that away from me. Anyone who was lucky enough to know my dad would agree that his good qualities were too numerous to list. At the top were his kindness, his patience, and his ability to make those around him feel valued. My dad definitely had an endless desire to learn. When he retired, he enrolled in a class at ASU almost every semester. While he broadly enjoyed learning, studying Judaism was his passion. He was a fixture at Valley Beit Midrash programs, always with a smiling face and a curious, open mind. While he paid close attention to the speakers, I know he also treasured the discussions that followed. Always on top of current events, my dad would send me emails with attachments about topics he considered important. His wish was not just that I read them, but that they encouraged me to speak out and take action. I think of my wonderful father so, so often, and I especially feel him with me when I engage in Jewish learning. Sherman Minkoff was full of joy, full of menshulakite, full of ideas, and full of questions. He was a regular at Valley Beit Midrash learning, and he modeled for us what it means to live a life of seeking truth, pursuing wisdom with courage and humility, and pursuing a consistent commitment 
to lifelong learning. His presence is with us each day in our big drive. Noticing the days hurrying by when you're in love. My, how they fly through days, all of them gone. Nothing but blue skies from now Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. So now we're going to hear from um, uh, Ricky Kaplan, Andy and Sherman's daughter, to introduce our scholar today. Thank you. Um, in learning a bit about Rabbi Dr. Schwartz to introduce him today, I noticed that he shared several qualities with my late father. While their lives certainly went in different directions, they both were clearly intelligent, cared a great deal about Judaism and expressing their Judaism. And they both, my father did, Rabbi Schwartz continues to walk the walk in working to make the world around them better. Dr. Schwartz has been a congregational rabbi, a social entrepreneur, and the CEO of several nonprofits. He's also an author and has written more than 100 articles and three groundbreaking books. In addition to the book that my mom discussed that my dad um, read, Jewish Megatrends, he's also written Finding a Spiritual Home, How a New Generation of Jews Can Transform the American Synagogue and Judaism and Justice, The Jewish Passion to Repair the World. He's currently a senior fellow at Chazon, which is, I hope I'm speaking correctly and describing it as a Jewish organization working for a more environmentally sustainable world. Rabbi Schwartz founded and for 21 years led Panim, the Institute for Jewish Leadership and Values. Panim was dedicated to inspiring, training and empowering Jewish youth to a life of leadership, activism, and service. Certainly something that we are in dire need of now. Uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, a well-known name to I'm sure everyone here, founder of Kalal and one of American Jewry's most notable leaders had to say about Rabbi Schwartz. Rabbi Sid Schwartz's life and career embody a unique mix of religious vision and an ability to implement that vision in the real world. We are honored and grateful to have him with us. Welcome, Rabbi Sid. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Shmuley. Uh, Ricky, thanks for that introduction. Uh, and I'm so honored to be offering this annual Sherman Minkoff lecture in honor and memory of your dad. Uh, Andy, I was very moved by your words as well. And I do recall the conversations I had with Sherman and his love of learning is such that it kind of not only embodies what Valiant Bit Midrash is all about, but the fact that we can study in his honor uh, this afternoon uh, is a true tribute to what he was so committed to. So thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be making a return visit to Valiant Bit Midrash. Uh, I so appreciate the richness of the offerings uh, and the program developed by my good friends friend uh, Rashmuli. Uh, this time, by the way, I have no reason to complain about 
uh, flight delays, uh, long lines at the airport, or even noisy air filters in hotel rooms. Uh, <laughs> just to show, uh, I'm speaking to you from my, home, from my home in Rockville, Maryland, and just to show you how strange the human mind is, uh, I now long for lines at the airport, delays in transit, and I give my right arm to see the inside of the hotel room right now. <laughs> it's been quite a while. Uh, I read an article the other day uh, about uh, people who have now been sequestered in their homes for about 10 months, but who on a daily basis were used to commuting from their home to work. Uh, and the practice has been that a lot of these individuals now go out to the driveway and sit in their car for 20, 30 minutes just to have a little bit of quiet and solitude because they miss the commute. So whatever we don't have is what we long for. And maybe that's a lesson for all of us. Uh, it also reveals perhaps what is our new pandemic ethos, uh, do whatever works. Uh, and in that spirit, I hope that all of you are well, that your families are well. And I'm so pleased that you could be here for this uh, annual Sherman Minkoff annual lecture. <clears throat> the title of my talk is The Creation Story in Humanity's Homework. The impetus for my talk today is the abject failure on the part of Jewish educational institutions to do an adequate job of teaching theology, the study of the nature of God and religious belief. Now, this is not likely to be a problem that has kept you up at nights but I hope to make it a topic that will motivate you to get out of bed tomorrow morning. Theology is not just for theologians. Any human being who asks the question, why was I put on earth? What is my life's purpose? Is life worth living? Is asking a theological question. The same is true for those who ask, why do we see evil people succeed? and good people suffer. The very popularity of Harold Kushner's classic book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, is evidence of the hunger that people have for a language to talk about ultimate questions. And yet, Harold Kushner's book is the exception that proves the rule. Religious institutions shy away from offering sophisticated and nuanced interpretations of God. This is surely the safer course of action so as not to upset the faithful who tend to be the financial backbone of most religious institutions. But in the long run, if you don't provide people with a sophisticated way to talk about God, the most highly educated will simply walk away from any religious affiliation and any religious lifestyle. More and more Jews are asking the question, why should I spend time and money in a religious institution if it will not provide me with a way to answer the biggest questions that I have about life's purpose? Now, I'd like to tackle this question in two parts this afternoon. First, I wanna start at the beginning, the beginning of the world that is, or at least the way the authors of the Bible imagined the world came into being. More importantly, I wanna look at the way our sages understood the first few chapters of the Torah. I then wanna look at three modern rabbis who offer a welcome 
and nuanced understanding of the nature of God that may actually surprise you. So let's jump in. In chapter one of the book of Genesis, God creates all the key elements of the natural world. Actually, AG, you're now obscuring my whole screen. Let's see what I can do about that. Maybe I need to do something on my end. I'll qualify when we're ready for it, okay? How's that? In chapter one of the book of Genesis, God creates all the key elements of the natural world as we know it. Light and darkness, land and sea, vegetation, living creatures from beasts to birds to insects, culminating in the creation of the first human beings, male and female. Simple? Not exactly. Unless you are a fundamentalist, and I am not, you do not take the story literally. If the story then is metaphor, we interrogate it for what it is trying to tell us about God, nature, and humanity, and the relationship between all three. Spoiler alert for linear thinkers. There is no one answer to this. In fact, it isn't even a multiple choice question where you can choose all of the above. For Jews interpreting the texts of the opening chapters of Genesis, indeed of any passages in the Bible, are closer to one of those choose your own ending books that you might have bought for your kids. For Jews, the meaning of any given biblical text is layered. Generations of rabbis poured over the text in the belief that every sentence, every word, every letter was God-given and thus filled with meaning. These commentaries make up a voluminous body of rabbinic literature whose study can take several lifetimes. And for millennia, Jews read the Bible refracted to the competing interpretations of rabbis who engaged in cross-conversation, spending centuries in several continents. If I, as a 21st century rabbi, want to offer my interpretation of a verse, I stand on the shoulders of generations of rabbis who came before me and who commented on the same verse. I then engage in a conversation or a debate with those same rabbis, even though they lived generations ago and far away. Students of the Bible know that in the 19th century, critical biblical scholarship began to uncover different narrative strands in the Bible that got ascribed to different writers or schools of writers. It helped to explain why there were narratives in the Bible that were internally inconsistent. But the classical rabbinic commentators didn't need a documentary hypothesis to offer different readings of even the same word. Living as we do in an age when our public discourse is rarely respectful or civil, it is important to understand and underscore that Jews read competing interpretations of biblical text every day. They got used to conflict. They got used to debate. Two of the great sages of the Talmud, Hillel and Shammai, always took different positions on issues of the day. At one point, according to the Talmudic text, a voice from heaven declares about their arguments, both these and these are the words 
of the living God. It is the Jewish way to say that every opinion is valid because it is an attempt to elicit what God might have intended by that given verse. No one should be so arrogant as to think that their interpretation is the only way to understand the intent of the biblical text. Let's look at one classical example of how we can read the creation story with two totally competing interpretations. <clears throat> and now we'll go to slide number one. So you read in Genesis 121, <clears throat> God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fertile and increase, fill the earth and master it, and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on earth. The two key words in this verse are kivshuha, urdu. Kivshuha meaning to master it, and urdu is to rule over something. And in some cases, the root of the word urdu even means to tyrannize over things. Now contrast that to Genesis 2.15. Again, we're in the same Torah, the same book of Genesis, a very different version of how Genesis, how the world came to be. It said, God took the man, that being Adam, and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Here the two key words are, la'avda ulishomra, to work it and to care for it. One of the things I love about the word ulishomra is that it's essentially to guard the earth. We see it as something that, that we want to protect and take care of, we're custodians over it. If I could actually, if you'll allow me a English pun playing on the way that oftentimes the Bible makes puns out of words, is that we might describe the human being in the second version in Genesis chapter two as a gardener, spelled G-U-A-R-D-E-N-E-R. -E -E one who both guards the earth, but also the second meaning, take out the U, a gardener who actually puts hands in the earth. Now, one could not have two more diametrically opposed worldviews. In verse 28, humanity has dominion over nature. Nature is ours to use as we please. If you need to cut down another five acres of forest, to build a factory, create a new subdivision of homes, or expand your personal estate from 30,000 square feet to 60,000 square feet, go right ahead. Nature is subservient to the pinnacle of creation, the human being. But in verse 15, the second selection, the first human, Adam is told, you are part of this thing we call nature. You must guard it, protect it, ensure that it survives. Ask any farmer and they will tell you that they serve the land, not the other way around. Now, lest you think that we are debating how many angels might be able to dance on the head of a pin, I would argue that these competing worldviews tell you everything you need to know about our current debate 
and how we treat our environment. If you believe that human beings are meant to have dominion over the earth, then climate change needs to be called a hoax. Why let a few more particles of carbon in the atmosphere get in the way of building more coal-firing power plants, drilling a few more oil wells, or starting up a new fracking project? Our economic interests are served by keeping gas cheap for our cars and trucks, allowing us to keep our air conditioners set at 68 degrees in the summer and 74 degrees in the winter, and running pipelines through pristine wilderness or sacred burial grounds of Native Americans. If both verses are attributed to God, then I can only conclude that we are dealing with a fallible biblical text. Because to my mind, God's word needs to be consistent with the highest ethical and moral insights of which we are capable. In a choice between being a dominator or a custodian, I believe we must choose to be custodians because the world has been given to us as a sacred trust. And I believe that the Jewish tradition is on my side. Let's take a look at a 16th century rabbinic commentary on the creation story called Ecclesiastes Rabbah. Slide number two. <clears throat> In the hour that God created the first human, God took Adam before all the trees in the Garden of Eden, and he said, see my works, how fine and excellent they are. Now think upon this, and do not corrupt and destroy my world, for if you destroy it, there is no one to restore it after you. No one to restore it after you. I want to suggest that parallel to these two competing descriptions of the act of creation lie also two competing understandings of God within the three Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. One interpretation portrays God in a patriarchal and hierarchical fashion. The religion that flows from that male, miracle-making sky god tends to put great emphasis on doctrine, seeing injustice as a divinely ordained condition beyond the ability of humanity to affect. But the Abrahamic religious tradition also have portrayals of God as a healer of broken hearts, as we read in Psalms 147, and a redeemer of oppressed people, as we read in Exodus chapter 6. I have always been drawn to this second image of God, not as a master of the universe, but as a force for personal and social transformation in the world. And this God always gives humanity homework because this God cannot and will not work alone. Consider the difference between these two verses in the book of Psalms. Let's look at slide three. Psalms 24 says, a Psalm of David, the earth is the Lord's and all that it holds, the world and its inhabitants. But Psalm 115 says, 
The heaven belongs to the Lord, but the earth he gave over to human beings. So in the first, God controls everything. In the second, God stays in his or her lane because what happens on earth is the province of humanity, of human beings. In the first verse, God is master of the universe. The image is vertical. God is up there in control. Humanity is down below, subject to the rule of God. In the second verse, God is present in the world, but what happens on earth is the responsibility of us human beings. The image is not vertical, but horizontal, because whenever and wherever human beings can move the world closer to a place of justice and compassion, we are actualizing the highest versions of ourselves and of society. Humans are capable of godliness, acting as God might act in the fullness of God's compassion and justice. In Latin, this is called imitatio dei, the imitation of God. This is, I believe, the intent of Genesis 1.27. Let's look at slide number four. <clears throat> and God created man in his image. In the image of God, he, God, created him. Male and female, he created them. And the key thing here is, is B'Thelem Elohim. What does it mean to say that human being is made in the image of God? I'm going to take down the screen. To be godlike, human beings must be partners with God in the act of creation. That, I suggest, is the meaning of Tselemelochim, being in the image of God. In the Talmud and Tractate Shabbat, we're taught that although God could have created bread, instead God created wheat so the humans could make bread. And although God could have created bricks, Instead, God created clay so that humans could build and make bricks. The lesson is that humanity is an integral part of the creative unfolding of the universe. The Jerusalem Talmud records a very telling debate on this very principle. Rabbi Akiva makes the statement that the single most important verse in the Bible is the Yehafzalarech HaKamocha. Leviticus chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor as you would love yourself. But then Ben-Azai comes along and counters Rabbi Akiva's claim. Ben-Azai said the most important verse is not love your neighbor as yourself, but rather the verse we just saw, Genesis 1.27, human beings are made with Selim Elohim in the image of God. Ben-Azai says this because that verse implies that every human being, regardless of gender, race, class, or religious identity is a partner with God in creating a world of shalom, a world of wholeness and holiness. By implication, it also suggests that we treat every human being that we encounter with a level of respect due to a person who is a reflection of the divine. Theology matters because some theologies make us passive, while other theologies make us active partners with God in effecting social transformation. I wanna now look at three biblical verses with you 
through the prism of human beings as active partners with God. Now, AJ, on these slides, we're gonna actually have to go back and forth, unlike what we've said before, so I can see my own notes, okay? Slide number five. Deuteronomy 31. It reads, when I, meaning God, bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, speaking them being the children of Israel, the land that I promised to their ancestors, and they, the Jewish people, the Israelites, eat their fill and grow fat, they eventually turn to other gods and serve them, spurning me in my covenant. Okay, let's hold on to that thought. What does it conjure up? AJ, back to the uh, text, please. No, no, take it off the screen, please. That verse from Deuteronomy brings out how we consider how first world affluence and consumption patterns have brought our environment to the brink of disaster and what human beings could do to change that. Isaiah chapter five, slide number six. Ah, those who add house to house and join field to field until there is room for none but you to dwell in the land. What does this mean if human beings are active partners? Take the slide down, please. Consider how many public officials are beholden to development and developers because of the money they can contribute to their campaigns. What would it look like if we changed the way we funded campaigns at the local, state, and federal levels? This whole notion from Isaiah is that there's so many houses, you can't even see what's going on in the land. So we need to read between the lines to understand what is our role in realizing the vision that the Torah is putting out. And a third example from Micah chapter two, slide number seven. Ah, those who plan iniquity and design evil on their beds. When morning dawns, they do it for they have the power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, covet houses and take them away. They defraud people of their homes and people of their land. Here again, think about this expansively. It suggests that people, when they gain certain political power, can abuse it, can take advantage of it. Take the screen down, please, a slide down. The reality is that we have a political system that continually advance new tax loopholes for people with wealth. At the same time that we slash government programs that provide a social safety net for the poor and the vulnerable, most often communities of color. What could we do to change that? My reading of these three verses clearly depends on understanding God horizontally and not vertically. Another way to say that is God is not a what, but a when. Not a noun, but an adverb. God is present in the world when a human being does her or his homework and decides to be God's agent on earth. Now I am well aware that not all people of faith embrace this understanding of God. So much of the language of the Bible and of the liturgy that is used by the Abrahamic traditions 
utilize the Sky King vertical understanding of God. For much of my rabbinate, I have met thousands of Jews who tell me that they walked away from Judaism because they did not believe in a Sky King God. I took them by surprise when I told them that I rejected that notion of God as well. I would argue that our schools and synagogues do a major disservice to the very children they hope to engage in Judaism by leaving them with a view that if you do not believe in the Sky King God, you cannot be a good Jew. Not only is that bad pedagogy and bad theology, but the strategy also backfires. Many of the best and brightest Jews simply go AWOL on Judaism because it does not offer an intellectually compelling and spiritually captivating understanding of God. I want to now look at three exceptions to this approach. I want to look at short excerpts from the writings of three important modern Jewish thinkers who offer a more expansive and progressive understanding of God. The three people are Rabbis Harold Schulweis, Arthur Green, and David Hartman. Rabbi Schulweis was a conservative rabbi trained at JTS and heavily influenced by the writings of Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, and by Abraham Joshua Heschel. Dr. Art Green was also ordained by the Jewish Theological Seminary, but he never identified as a conservative rabbi. He became one of the great scholars of Hasidic literature of our day, and is probably the leading Jewish theologian in the world today, currently serving as the rector of the Pearlist Rabbinical Seminary at Hebrew College in Boston. And David Harbin was an Orthodox rabbi in Canada who made Aliyah to Israel in the 1970s, where he started the Shalom Harbin Institute, one of the leading think tanks and educational institutions in the Jewish world. Despite their different backgrounds, all offer theologies that are consistent with the way that I interpreted the biblical story of creation. Now, what I'd like to do with you is read you three excerpts and comment on them as we read them. They'll be on the screen and we'll kind of read them together. And at the end, we'll have plenty of time for you to ask questions about these passages. So we'll go to slide number eight. So this is from a book by Harold Schulweis called, For Those Who Can't Believe, Overcoming the Obstacles to Faith. And it's a short section called, The Gerunds of Godliness. So those who are not, uh, don't remember their grammar classes from uh, ninth grade, a gerund is a grammatical form derived from a noun, but that functions as a verb. And where Rabbi Schulweis begins is to essentially recognize that the language of the prayer book is what actually trips people up to think of that God can only be the Sky King God that I mentioned earlier. So he, he writes the following. I wanna refocus the classic benedictions, healing the sick, clothing the naked, releasing the bound, raising up the fallen. These are divine activities found not there or here in me or within you, but in the relationship between our human and non-human environments. Godliness is in the activity of doing justly, healing the sick, raising the fallen, supporting the disadvantaged, uniting the real and the ideal. So Shulweis is 
flipping the actor in the prayer book, as opposed to ascribing to God all the activities of healing the sick and clothing the naked, he says that when human beings engage in that act, we are actually manifesting godliness. He continues, to believe in godliness as opposed to believing in God, is to believe in the verbs and adverbs that refer to the activities of divinity. To behave in a godly fashion is to realize in one's life the attributes of godliness that are potential in all human and non-human energies. Atheism is not the disbelief in the reality and goodness of the noun, but disbelief in the reality and goodness of the attributes. The question to be asked of those who seek God is not whether they believe in a noun that cannot be known, but, they, but, but whether they believe in the germs of godliness, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, supporting the fallen, pursuing peace, loving the neighbor. The imperatives of godliness call the seeker to imitate the ways of godliness. This is such a radical teaching and I believe so beautiful in so much of our culture, and this I think is largely in Christian culture, we think that the 64,000 or maybe now a $64 million question for people religious is, do you believe in God or not? For Schulweiss, that's the wrong question. He's asking rather, or he says we should be asking, do we believe in the attributes of godliness and are we prepared to take action to make them manifest because we are essentially God's hands and feet in this world. We are the actors in the world, not God. The idea of Elohut, or godliness that favors verbs over nouns, has roots in the tradition. Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, we have no nouns by which to express God's essence. We have only adverbs by which to indicate the ways in which God acts. For Heschel, a noun presupposes comprehension. Calling God by name means that we know God in the manner that we know other noun names. But in the Bible, Moses' constant demand to know God's name is rejected. God is, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. God is not a static noun, but a dynamic verb encompassing past, present, and future states of being. God is not a subject or an object. God is known only in relationship and only in situations that bear upon human beings. Again, the notion of moving from believing in the noun to believing in the adverb of how we can manifest godly attributes in the world. I'm gonna skip the top of the next paragraph and go to the middle of that last paragraph we're gonna read towards the end of the line, I'm reading as follows. If we know anything about divinity, where the underlying is, it is not God the noun, but God the verb. Not God the inscrutable person, but God's noble qualities that may be emulated. He might want to say that must be emulated. What is then to know God? The prophet explained that when the king judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well with him. Was this not to know me, saith the Lord? Godliness is behaved, 
Godliness is believed through doing justice, in caring, in curing, in protecting. To behave in godly fashion, is this not to know the divine? The 20th century thinker Franz Rosenzweig asserted, truth is a noun only for God. For us, it is an adverb. Again, very profound and in many ways, very radical. I would suggest in many places, this short passage opens up an entire world of understanding God in a totally different way. And nothing pleases me more as a rabbi than sitting with someone who comes to me and says, Rabbi Sid, I don't believe in God. I can't really be Jewish. And I've had this conversation so often. And I say, hold on a second. Do you believe in goodness? in caring, in justice? Do you believe that you have a responsibility to advance those things? And when the answer to that is yes, they actually are revealing that they are not atheists, that they actually are theists, that they actually do want to make the attributes of God real in the world. I'm gonna to go to the next slide now and make a contrast now to Rabbi David Hartman. And this comes from a book called the God who hates lies, confronting and rethinking Jewish tradition. Now, I would need to preface the reading of this passage by saying that in the Orthodox world, the main way to understand theology is through the body of halakha, of Jewish law. Because from an Orthodox perspective, halakha is the way. It literally means the way, the way we walk, the way we live, the way we are in the world. And so, as opposed to thinking in very philosophical theological terms, for an Orthodox Jew, for an Orthodox rabbi, it's how halakha is understood and how we as human beings position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis halakha. And so with that, by way of introduction, I'm gonna begin on the second line. So David Harmon asked the question, why nurture the myth that humans are not the ones who shape interpret and have to live by halakha. Is it possible we are expected to ignore humanity in order to live by Torah law, to stand above the vicissitudes and inconsistencies of the temporal world? So talk about radical. In this opening statement, what Hartman is saying is, we should not think that halakha simply comes from God. There's something that's going on here. There is somehow human beings are somewhere in the mix between God and what needs to happen in the world. He goes on now, and this is a very rigorous critique of what is mainstream Orthodox belief. Hartman writes, in my view, such an approach is devastating to halachic culture. It yields a Torah not rooted in life, emaciating the lived spirit that is meant to shape the law and its evolving application. It asks of halakhic Jews commitment to systems of law alien to their own sensibilities. Every halakhic commitment then becomes an akedah-like experience of self-sacrifice. I have suspended all my deeply held ethical values. I live by a law in which I have no presence. I am the ghost of a human being who stands in the image of God. And this theology, Denying what we know about ourselves is the true religious moment. This seems to me a recipe for disaster. Let me comment on this here. So for many Orthodox Jews, 
the notion of surrendering to God's will and living out his will as made manifest in halakha is precisely the wrong approach, according to Harman. He says to do that is to surrender some level of our own human autonomy, which brings important knowledge and wisdom of self into the halakhic prescription. He continues to the extent that we suppress our own reality, observations and values. We condemn ourselves to spiritual emptiness from within and without. If the system attempts to make us deny what we know, it risks the encroaching sense that it must hang precariously on an irrational thread. So for Hartman, you cannot take the human piece of the equation out of halakhic prescriptions at all. It makes halakha totally irrational. And for Hartman, that is not acceptable. Now he's gonna critique his own teacher. Uh, you'll see in the first line that I'll begin reading is uh, Soloveitchik, he's referring to Rob Joseph Soloveitchik. If America has never had a chief rabbi, but if there were one, Rob Joseph Soloveitchik would have held that mantle. He was for many years the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva University in New York. And he was David Hartman's teacher. And here, David Hartman is gonna challenge his own teacher. He writes, I have a strong intuition that Soloveitchik felt traditional orthodoxy was losing ground against secular culture in the marketplace of ideas and could only survive by creating a barrier against having it be subject to comparative cultural studies and historical critique. But Hartman asks, what is the price paid for this permanence and who are the personalities and cultures it produces? I hold rather that the more tradition is steeped in the lived reality of the intellectual culture of our time, the more vibrant it becomes and the more it retains our respect. Now that comment in the line about the, he asked the question, who are the personalities and culture it produces if we simply surrender all human autonomy and simply believe that God wrote everything and was the only person responsible for the halakha that we've now inherited. Hartman continues, to build ghetto-like mansions to safeguard the tradition is to admit that Judaism cannot survive in an open society. It means choosing the brittle security of a permanent system over a system that absorbs and allows itself to be impacted by contemporary life and all its shifting cultural contingency. It means acknowledging that calling the halakhic system divine doesn't strengthen it any more than calling it human detracts. You know, here it's a reminder of uh, one of my teachers when I was uh, an undergraduate was a great Bible professor named Samuel Avery, who used to say to us all the time that the Bible is great, not because it's divine, it's divine because it's great. Look at the wisdom in the Bible and that's what makes it divine. And Hartman here is saying very much the same thing. He believes the halakha needs to change. He believes that the extent that we can bring our lived reality now in the 21st century, in the days of salvation, would have been the 20th century. The more we bring that to bear on the halakha we inherit from the past, the more halakha becomes alive and relevant. Last two lines on the left-hand column. In my view, taking into account our humanity is precisely what God asked the Jewish people to do in covenantal halakha. An important term here because covenantal 
means mutuality, not simply God giving halakha to the Jewish people to observe, but halakha that exists in the tension between God's desires and God's word and the reality that human beings experience. This is a key point of divergence from Soloveitchik, for whom surrender and self-sacrifice, not empowerment, is a key feature of halakhic spirituality. I believe that God encourages us to expand our intelligence and build a system that takes into account all the changes that have taken place in the world. A human being affirms his or her lived reality and brings it into the presence of God. So Harvey here is not rejecting God in any way. He simply says that by design, God has designed a system with wisdom that we've inherited, but as it's been interpreted by human beings over time, it becomes all the more relevant and vibrant and spiritually vital. And that's what he's calling upon Jews to do in this covenantal halachic understanding that he writes here. Takes us now to our third and final passage from Dr. Ark Green. This comes from a booklet, not a, not a book, but a booklet published by Ark Green called Restoring the Aleph, Judaism for the Contemporary Seeker. Starting at the Big B, just like the book of Genesis starts with Breshit, the Bet of Breshit. So Ark Green begins, once we let ourselves question the vertical metaphor of our ancient cosmology, a great deal more is questioned as well. The God above might come down onto the mountain once at a particular place and time to talk with those gathered there. Since God is outside the world, revelation is a unique and unusual event. But can the God within, the one who speaks to every human heart, have the same relationship of choosing with the Jewish people. If God is none other than the innermost part of reality, is not all of being equally an emanation of the same divine self. Is Judaism not just a human symbolic language into which we Jews render the universal, inward God's silent pre-verbal speech, just as others translate into verbal symbols of their own heritage? And can the internal God be the source of authority in the same way as the fellow on top of the mountain, the one who could, according to the Midrash, hold the mountain over our heads, even as we agreed to receive Torah saying, if not, here you will be buried. So this takes a little bit of unpacking, okay? So we start here, of course, we're in the middle of a long essay. But we start here by arguing saying that if we reject this vertical God, the sky king, we have to actually challenge the notion that it was God that chose the Jewish people as the chosen people. And we also have to question whether every word of the Torah, as the tradition suggests to us, is the word of God. What actually, what Arquin is suggesting here is that religions actually are cloaking the, a deeper truth with the capital T in the particularities of their particular religious traditions. And that God is both external to human beings, but also the, our innermost reality is also inside of us. And here, this is Art Green as the interpreter of the Hasidic masters, a true mystic who sees that God can 
simultaneously be outside of us and beyond us and in the innermost parts of our soul and our heart. I continue. Most basically, it would seem that God within is not other than ourselves in the same clear way as the God above. The vertical metaphor allows for distance. If you do not do good, I will turn far away, rise into the seventh heaven, far beyond your ability to reach me. But the hidden God buried deep within the self feels more like one who ever longs to be discovered. And the process of finding God is not to be clearly distinguished from the deepest levels of self-discovery. What we are likely to find is the truth of the mystics. The individual self and the cosmic self are one. The Judaism that will emerge from a turn inward will then be something like a version of what Algis Huxley and others have called Philosophia Perennis, a single truth that underlies all religions, though expressed and taught in the specific symbolic language of the Jewish tradition. I want to skip to the middle of the second column now, where it's underlined, we discover. We discover every more of God's self and will as we seek to live in God's presence. Torah is not a finite body of laws and teachings, codified in details of praxis down to the nth degree. It is rather an endless well of wisdom present in the texts, commentaries, and traditions of our ancestors, to be sure. But loving, living in us only because we keep our hearts open by our own practice it is the presence of divine energy that we find within, renewed each day, that makes our teachings living Torah not a dead letter. We can come back and take the slide off. So what our queen is saying here is that God is ever more real to us because it is most, both the deepest inside notion of what we understand and what we experience in life. And Torah is not a finite body of words and, and teachings and laws, but rather an infinite well of wisdom that we continually unravel and discover. The three theologians whose thought we just sampled are not at all the same. Schulweiss wants to challenge the myth of the personal supernatural God that so many Jews learned about as children. He substitutes for the need for human beings to be the hands and feet of God in the world so that acts of chesed, compassion, and tzedek, justice, can be done. Harbin challenges the theology of his own teacher, Joseph Soloveitchik, coming to the view that to believe that halakha cannot change because it was given by God at Mount Sinai is to create a form of idolatry not desired by the tradition. Whatever truth God represents must evolve in keeping with the march of history and the expanding ethical understanding of humanity. And Art Green gives voice to a higher consciousness that no longer distinguishes between a transcendent God and the God that dwells within. For him, cosmic oneness sits at the heart of every religion and wisdom tradition. Religions simply put their particular cloaks over common truth with a capital T. But despite these differences, all three rabbis reject the notion that humanity is subject to a God who both rewards and punishes 
based on some cosmic scorecard. Instead, they see human beings as having some serious homework to do, which brings us back to the original interpretation I offered of the story of creation. We are partners with the greater mystery of the universe in a search for a life of compassion, justice, holiness, and purpose. My friends, we've come a long way from the textbooks we used in Hebrew school. Believe me, I get it. I was raised in a traditionally observant Jewish home by parents who were European-born survivors of the Shoah. They sent me to an Orthodox yeshiva from first to sixth grade where there was no alternative but to think of God as a personal supernatural being who resided in heaven, who was omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omnipresent, present in all places and things. And I rejected it. In fact, I was prepared to reject all of Judaism by the time I reached the age of my bar mitzvah. The fact that this past June I celebrated 40 years in the rabbinate owes to the fact that at age 14, my uncle, who was a conservative rabbi, introduced me to the writings of Mordecai Kaplan, one of the great Jewish thinkers of the 20th century and the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism. Now, Mordecai Kaplan was also raised as an Orthodox Jew, but even as he rejected a belief in a personal supernatural God, he posited a world that was fully infused with a power that leads to personal and social transformation. This was the horizontal God metaphor that I needed to realize that my work in the world could help to advance a godly ideal, even if I did not believe in the sky king God of the rabbinic tradition. It took some time and some study for me to realize that the very Bible that sits at the heart of the three great Abrahamic traditions offers an alternative way to understand God and the homework that we are supposed to do during our time on earth. All of which takes me back to the book that we are each writing that provides for the choose your own ending. Religion has a checkered track record in history. It can provide chaplains for the empire or champions of the vulnerable. Religious institutions and those who carry out its work often seek power and influence and protect the status quo. To me, that is a religion that has lost its soul. Alternatively, religious institutions and those who carry out its work can ally with those who are most vulnerable. This approach to religion makes us focus on those who are not favored by the power structures that rule each society. Again, the choice is, should religion provide chaplains for the empire to protect the status quo? Or champions, of the most or champions of the most vulnerable who might create a world of chesed and shalom, compassion and peace. When the prophets of the Hebrew Bible continually argue that we need to ally with a stranger, the widow and the orphan, they're making the case for the second framing of what religion should be all about. That is the prophet's understanding of what God wants of us. That my friends is our homework. And although that is the harder road, I am convinced that it's the only path to a more just and peaceful world. Thank you, Rabbi Sid. This was a fascinating, fascinating presentation. 
um, and a great exploration of amazing theologians in, in addition to the, the way that you brought your theology in. And uh, what we're gonna do for our next 25 minutes is um, have the chance to engage with one another a little bit. And so as I have shared, you're welcome to, to send uh, your question over to me in the chat as many of you have already. And you're also uh, welcome to send over in the chat that you'd like to be called upon and we'll unmute just you given that we have between at any given moment between 70 and 80 people uh, here learning with us. <clears throat> so our first question here, Rabbi Schwartz, is from uh, our, our, our good friend, Anita Gutkin, who asks, how can you as a rabbi convince a Jew that says, I no longer accept Judaism because I don't believe in God, that they should remain Jewish by understanding Jewish theology rather than modern secular philosophical readings that promote social justice, kindness, and activism? It's a great question. And, uh, you know, so much of the challenge today is uh, there is this impulse about how do we both reject a view of God and of religion that no longer is compatible with our modern understandings of the world and not go all the way to the extreme of, well, let's just then adopt universalism because frankly, who needs it anyway? And it's an example of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In my view, and, and here I clearly owe my thinking to the insights of Mordecai Kaplan, who I cited in my presentation. When Kaplan, Kap, much of Kaplan's teaching, by the way, was adopted in the other forms of non-Orthodox Judaism. You'll find much of Kaplan's teaching in both conservative Jewish thought and reformed Jewish thought, as well as Jewish renewal today. Uh, less so in Orthodoxy, although I saw parts of Kaplan in David Hartman's passages as well, and other Orthodox thinkers as well. But one of the pieces of Kaplan's teaching that was quite controversial and not fully embraced was when he said that he didn't believe the Jews were the chosen people. Now, some of you uh, might be old enough as I am to remember the Smothers Brothers when Tommy said, mama would like you best, right? You know, we, we love this notion that, you know, somehow we are God's favorite children. You know, even the people who say in their next breath, I'm not sure I believe in, in God, say, we like the idea of chosen people. And that level of ethnic chauvinism is reflected in almost every religious tradition that's ever been on the face of the planet. For Kaplan, and we saw this in, in the teaching of Mark Green, if you don't believe in a God who appears on Mount Sinai, you're hard pressed to maintain the idea of chosenness. But now here's the thin line that I wanna walk and goes to the question that was posed. I continue to not only believe in, but I love, embrace and cherish all the particularities of the Jewish tradition because it gives me a way. It's actually the meaning of halakha. Now I may not observe halakha the same way that Rav Shmuley observed halakha, okay? But, it, but there's no way into navigating a complex world with so many ethical dilemmas that we're facing, thinking about our own day and the moral complexities of our own day and multiple truths that we confront, okay? That Judaism has given us a way and a practice and a holy way of understanding the world that gives me an anchor in that place. And by the way, to the extent that I've done a fair amount of work with and dialogue with clergy and people of faith from Islam and Christianity as well, I totally honor and respect the way that they've chosen. It's not whether that my way is the better way. My way is simply my way and their way is their way. 
And I believe that in 50 years time, we'll be amazed at how much we continue to think in religious silos and not realize that every religion on the planet is a way to essentially cloak the larger truth with a capital T, the wisdom that comes to us from a greater source in the universe. In the particularities of a practice that gives meaning and creates religious community. There is no religious community without practice. And that then brings us back to Judaism. And so when I meet a person who says to me, I don't believe in God, why do I need Judaism? I say, because you need a way to navigate this world and you need a religious community with whom to travel that journey together. Great, thank you, amazing. So we have a question from our friend Hannah Lang here who asks, how do, you, how do you make sense of prayer in light of your explanation of God godliness? Well, there was that great passage, and I hope that you'll be able to get the slides to read the passage again from Harold Schulweitz. Uh, I now can use the traditional liturgy and talk about God who heals the sick, uh, who brings comfort to the bereaved, uh, and translate it to myself as why I need to make manifest those attributes in the world by myself, okay? That doesn't put me in a godless world. It puts me in a God-full world. Because when I do that, when we act in a godly way, we are making God all the more manifest in our world. So prayer actually articulates those values that we're supposed to embody. There, may, there are Jews out there who believe that when they praise God, they are somehow bringing Sheva, bring honor to a God who has a, who has a, a consciousness. I don't believe that God has a consciousness. I believe God has a reality. To me, God is very real. But when I read a passage from Ashrei, that says, Some would read, and many read, God opens God's hand, and feeds every living thing with what they need. And I read, we must open our hand and feed every living creature with what they need to be sustained. It's the same prayer, but one evokes, and this goes back to the title of my talk, humanity's homework is to actually manifest the attributes and all prayer cries out to me as I pray about what I need to do and how I need to show up. Now, one of the questions I get asked a lot uh, I, I'm the founding rabbi of a reconstruction synagogue in Bethesda, Maryland, where I'm still privileged to lead services and teach and still have a role as a founding rabbi, although my successors do all the heavy lifting, believe me. But I get asked time and time again by people who are members of our reconstruction synagogue, why didn't Kaplan and his colleagues, when they rewrote the prayer book, take out that formula, Baruch Hashem, blessed are you, God that you with a capital Y in the English translation takes people and puts them back into the whole Sky King mode, that, 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 world, that uh, vertical metaphor, so to speak. And the answer to that, which may not be satisfactory to everyone, is that Kaplan was a strange mixture, maybe not unlike myself, Lahavdil, just to compare. Raised in Orthodox household, he felt that the formula, Baruch Hashem, was so central to tie us to the practices of our parents, grandparents, and ancestors who lived generations before us, he didn't want to play with that formula. 
There are those who have done that, by the way. Look at some of the liturgy that came out of the feminist movement who said, not only did they have it, they had a problem with the male imagery of God, and they had a problem with the proper noun of God, as if God is a name like Harry or Sally or Jane or, or Joe, okay? So feminist theology said, we've got to get rid of this whole subject God is not helpful to us whatsoever. But if you start to, what I urge Jews to do, we are a very well-educated, very sophisticated people. I'm amazed at how often Jews come to the prayer book with a level of literalism that, that, that moves us away from more nuanced reading. Prayer is poetry. Read the prayer book as if it were poetry because in it, there are all these things that tell us about the reality of the world that is so, so powerful. And that is to me what, what made prayer, the way to salvage prayer, the way to make prayer meaningful is to read it as poetry, not as meant to be taken literally. And, and when you do that, tefillah, prayer is a gift that keeps giving. I have to say that for me, I get excited when I utter prayers that I said ever since I was a little child. And I see some new truth in it that I didn't see last week. To me, that is the beauty of prayer because you need to work that liturgy. It's the same way of counting Torah every week. I read this week the Parsha, same Parsha I read a year ago, and I see in it things that I didn't see a year ago because the truth of holy text, be it Torah or liturgy, is not in the words on the page, but on the space between the words on the page and the lived reality of each individual that's reading it. That's what Hartman was saying in his own passage, exactly that. Beautiful, beautiful. So building off a question here from Eileen Landau um, around how do you understand the role and the differences between Jewish denominations today? Uh, let, let me un unpack that a little bit. So whether it's reform, conservative, orthodox, renewal, reconstructionist, non-denominational, fill in the blank, uh, you know, is that the same as saying Christian, Muslim, Jewish, that there's their way and there's my way, and each of us has our own lane, and we respect, but we stay in our lane? Or do you understand those to be a little bit more fluid? How do we, how do we understand today the differences and our experience of denominationalism? Whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, so look, I... I uh... I wrote in my PhD thesis, I did my PhD thesis, which I uh, wrote in 1981. So my math is not great, but I think that's uh, what, 40 years ago. Uh, in my dissertation, which was an intellectual history of conservative Judaism, I argue that there was no meaningful difference between the various non-Orthodox forms of Judaism. I believe that today, but for the institutions that were created a generation more ago, of each of the non-Orthodox religions. And now we have ironically a proliferation of more seminaries. We have more seminaries today than we had 20 years ago, which is ironic because there are fewer pulpits out there for the rabbis they're producing. That's a whole nother question, which is someone asked so I can respond to. But despite that, the fact is that the distinction between the denominations are not all that great. And if you ask Jews in the pew, they care very little about the denominational frameworks. The people who are essentially, you know, employees of the movement still believe in them. 
But I, we've done studies, there are studies that are out there that say most Jews say, don't put a denomination label, label on me, I'm just Jewish, or I'm transdenominational. Now, there are cultural differences. I still, if you blindfold me and take me into a synagogue, I can tell you within a minute if I'm in an Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Reconstruction, or Renewal Synagogue. I could do it usually in less than a minute. It's like name that tune, okay? Because there are cultural differences. But in terms of theology, there's a fluidity between what denominations are doing, and I think that's actually healthy. Uh, I, Muley, you know this. For many years, I ran retreats for rabbinical students from 12 seminaries, from Orthodox to Renewal to Secular Humanist. And what I loved about that at each retreat, I would have myself and two other rabbis come teach from different denominations. And what I loved about it is that the rabbinical students, future rabbis of certain denominations, would come to realize how much beauty there was in the approach of a future rabbi from another movement. I believe that the, the siloed way that people are shaped as rabbis, where they're exposed mostly to people in communities of their own denomination, is not at all healthy. I think the more that we can be exposed to each other in the Jewish world, the richer will become our experience. Uh, I'll tell a quick story here, perhaps, uh, because at these retreats with rabbinical students from all these denominations, uh, a different team of rabbis would lead each service. And I remember that within 24 hours, we had one service that was kind of a Jewish renewal service with a lot of meditation, and the Orthodox rabbinical students didn't know what was flying but they appreciated it. And that afternoon we had a minion with, where there was a machitza where women were on one side and the men on the other side. And the liberal Jews said, wow, there's something to that as well. I would love for us to see more of the beauty of each denomination, just as I believe that we as Jews need to appreciate the beauty of Islam and Christianity. That's not to say that we're rejecting our own path. It simply means that religion is meant for us to essentially give shape to the values and the uh, deepest beliefs that, we, that we've that we inherited. Amazing. So this next question is from David Lieberman, um, who, is, uh, who is the chair of the board of Valley Beit Midrash um, and uh, working on a book of theology himself. And he asks, you teach that our homework is to bring forth the attributes of godliness, such as love and kindness and justice. Are we living outside of God's purview when we act out of self-centeredness and greed? If so, how can that be? If not, why do we only assign good attributes to godliness? Yeah. So there's a uh, there's a there's a rabbinic concept called hester panim. Hester panim means the uh, the essentially the hiding of the face. We're talking here about the face of God. It's panim with a capital pay, if there's such a thing. There are no capital letters in Hebrew, of course, but I'm making a pun here. Okay. It's hester panim with a capital P. We're talking about what does it mean when God's face is obscured from us, okay? That was rendered into the 20th century theological lexicon by Martin Buber, who wrote a book called The Eclipse of God. And in that book, Buber tackles the most difficult question that any theologian can face or any person of faith can face, and that is the existence of evil in the world. If God represents everything, isn't evil 
part of God as well. And the way that the rabbis, Chazal, the rabbis of our tradition argue it, and Martin Buber interprets it in the 20th century is to say, yes, all is God, but when we see evil exist, essentially some of God is being obscured. It's a way to, uh, to try and kind of square a circle that is bedeviled humankind from the dawn of creation. And that's, by the way, the theme of Harold Kush's book that I cited in my presentation, What Bad Things Happen to Good People, okay? Uh, you know, there's this great story in, in the Talmud of, uh, of um, Elisa Benabuya, uh, who was one of the great sages of the tradition, who witnesses a, a young boy climbing a tree and casting away the, the, the bird before he takes the egg, which is a high mitzvah. So the mother bird should not witness that her egg is being taken. So this boy does a very high mitzvah, comes down from the tree. When he hits the ground, the snake bites him and the boy dies. And Elijah Benabuya witnessing the suffering of this righteous child, this pure soul, makes him totally lose his faith. And for the rest of the time in the Talmud, Elisha Ben-Nabuya leaves Judaism and he converts out of Judaism. And he's known as Acher, the other one, because the rabbis can't even dare to evoke or uh, articulate his name. So look, my point here is that from the dawn of time, every person of faith has suffered with, why do the good suffer? Why do we see the evil flourish even for a time and the good suffer? And that is, an eclipse of God, it doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. Okay, awesome. So, um, you know, on, on, on one level, um, individuals have to choose how to be godly themselves. They have to choose their own ethical pursuits and what they're going to stand for. Um, on the other hand, we're a community and we're a people. And I know um, that part of this Kaplan idea as well, as I understand it, is about democracy, demo democratic communities, right? Grassroots communities. How, how, if you were to look at our community and point to three ethical imperatives today, that you think our community should unite on, regardless of denomination, right? That individuals can have their own ethical uh, inclinations, but collectively as a Jewish people, today in 2021, we should unite around these imperatives. What are some of the things you would point to as most urgent? Uh, I love the question, I love the question. Look, the first thing that I would say is that, and, and I think the old, I want to say one thing before, before I answer the question, because I think that I, I told you we're actually going to go in a different direction, Shmuley. So I'm going to first answer the question you didn't ask, and then answer the question you did ask. Okay? I was asking that too. I was asking this question too. <laughs> okay. What people usually say is, if you're arguing for personal autonomy, then is it? Are we talking about anything goes? You know, is is each man and woman king to make their own moral decision? And I argue that it's not what personal autonomy is. And by the way, I do not believe that that's what even Hartman is teaching here, nor Schulweiss or Green, okay? I think we have a tradition that is filled with deep, deep values, which were meant to manifest, okay? And whether we see that, whether you believe in a personal supernatural God, that God is a loving God, or that God needs us to be loving people, it doesn't quite matter. We still have the notion of chesed that comes through to us, okay? And by the way, religious community is what reinforces that collective understanding of the tradition of the Masorah, okay? This is by the way that there's this, what we think is a new insight 
we call the wisdom of crowds. I think it's the name of a book. We say that it's actually quite remarkable that a crowd oftentimes can come up with the truth. So the community is a corrector to where human beings might go astray. Okay, so to answer the question you did ask then, uh, now saying that putting personal autonomy into perspective, you know, I, I, easy. First of all, let's start with the idea of chesed, compassion, okay? Uh, I think that the first rule of Judaism is for us to live with compassion for others. Uh, and if we can't manifest that, we're violating a core teaching of Judaism, okay? That is something that does not require denominational uh, refraction. Uh, all of us can agree on that for sure, okay? Uh, I think that all of us could agree on the notion of we should be pursuers of peace, not, by the way, the term is an active verb, not passively, let's hope for peace. Praying for peace is, is okay, but not good enough. We need to actively shalom to pursue peace. When we see conflict in the world, how do we create a greater peaceful world, okay? And the third principle I would say is that, that we need to be attuned to who are the most vulnerable people in the world. And that's not a hard one, okay? We have too much, and this is what I meant before, and, and I wanna restate a, a phrase I said here because it's so important, and it's a way I wanna answer your question. And I say that religion has a choice to provide chaplains for the empire or champions of the vulnerable. What do I mean by that? To be a chaplain for the empire is to essentially go to the people who are, to go to Caesar, to go to the temporal rulers uh, who could be just, but many times abuse their power. And the chaplain is the one who comes and essentially makes them seem kosher because if you could be a person of power, as much as you are, you know, raping, pillaging, conquering lands, oppressing people and enslaving them, you have the bishop, the cardinal, the pope, the rabbi, the imam who comes and stands by your side, who kind of gives you a patina of legitimacy. That is to my motion obscene. And, what, and by the way, many religions throughout history have been satisfied with being chaplains for the empire. And I think the way I understand the tradition is that we are not meant to be chaplains for the empire as clergy or people religious, but champions of the vulnerable. Look around and see who's suffering. Champion them as the prophets taught us, the widow, the orphan, okay? champion them, and then you are essentially doing what's been asked of us by God. Beautiful. This is a great place to pause right here. Rabbi Dr. Schwartz. this has been fascinating to learn from your presentation and the Q&A. There's many more questions we wish we could get to, but this has been such a wonderful hour and a half of time. Andy and Ricky, we thank you so much for this uh, gift to be able to learn together and for your beautiful words in honor of Dr. Sherman Minkoff of blessed memory. Friends, you, you're welcome to continue to contribute to that lecture fund to keep this going strong. I wanna remind you we have three VBM lectures uh, later this week uh, that you can join as well. And uh, wishing everyone a beautiful night. Thank you again, Rabbi Schwartz and all of you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.